Happy Sunday, my lovely congregation, and welcome back to Pillow Talk, the interview series of Pussy Church where I call some of my favorite erotic creators. This is Laura, an erotic writer and the creator of Tales of Laura, which you can find at talesoflaura.com and at Tales of Laura on Instagram. And today I'm checking in with Todd Barrett, a psychotherapist and writer who specializes in sex and relationships. We talked about toxic dating advice, the fact that sexual compatibility is built, not born, and how to talk to your partner about everything you never dared to. Amen. Welcome, everybody. Welcome back to Pillow Talk, the special interview edition of Pussy Church, where I talk to some of my favorite creators. And today I'm here with Todd Barrett, a certified sex therapist and writer who specializes in relationships and sex. I'm so excited to have you on the show. I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm a huge fan of your your Instagram and your writing. Thanks. When did you get started, actually? Uh, with Instagram, I started, I don't even know, time is, what does it mean? Um, I started, I think, three <laughs> or four years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, I had gotten out of a relationship. I never had Instagram. And I was like, well, I guess I need Instagram now. For dating? <laughs> yeah. Everyone's like, what's your Insta? And I'm like, uh, don't have one. Um, <laughs> so then I started it. Yeah. And your, your Instagram is incredible. Thanks. Um, and I wanted to jump right in and ask you because you often post um, something you call toxic dating advice or toxic relationship advice. Mm, I did today. You did today. I saw it in the morning. Um, (laughs) What do you mean by that? And could you give us some examples? Sure. Um, Well, I mean, there's so much advice about how to date or be in a relationship in the quote unquote, right, healthy, best, most satisfying ways. Um, And a lot of those um, a lot of that advice is actually really bad. <laughs> yes, I do. I, I believe you. You know, this is the kind of advice that goes something like, you know, when you find the right person, you won't have to work or, um, you know, in dating, you shouldn't have sex on the first date because it sends them the wrong message. Or, you know, cis women should never be the ones to ask a man out. They should mm-hmm. be pursued. You know, all of these kind of um, rules about relationships, whether based on gender or based on a reductive idea about what works. Um, you know, really lack nuance, which defines relationships, you know, complexity, uncertainty, all this stuff. Um, So it's really important that we break down some of these rules. Um, Yeah. And that's, that's a lot of what I, what I write about is I really challenge the status quo that I think most of us grew up with in terms of how we think about dating and relationships in this very all or nothing, black or white, good or bad, healthy or unhealthy type of way. Yeah, um, I think it's interesting. I've been learning this as well. Also, that there is um, two realities that can be true, you know, without, for example, you can love somebody very much and you can have a lot of conflict. (laughs) Yeah. These things, um, I think we are not taught at all that these things can coexist as in like somehow of a gray zone, I guess. Right. Yeah. And what you're saying is you're talking about paradox, which is like the yes. most important thing when it comes to relationships or just life in general. Like we can feel really sad about something, but relieved at the same time. You know, we can feel really happy about something, but also really sad at the same time. We can also be really frustrated with the partner, but also love them at the same time. You know, so this kind of duality 
really exists in our lives and on our relationships. And it's super important to understand. Yeah. What are some examples for toxic dating advice? Um, so that's the kind of you deserve everything kind of thing. (laughs) (laughs) You deserve everything. You shouldn't have to work for it. Um, you know, when it's, you meet the one you'll feel fireworks or, um, you won't have to work through conflict or, Mm. um, what's another one? Oh, I love the one that says stay single until, you know, you find the one. Um, you know, a lot of these rules revolve around the idea that the right relationship should last forever. Um, and that if it's not, then you're in the wrong relationship, um, which is an outdated idea based on the necessity we all had to have in our relationships for survival, which is we needed our relationships to last forever so we could survive. This is, you know, hundreds of years ago. Um, and so now that's not necessarily the case. Um, but so a lot of these dating rules really do operate around this standard for longevity as being the testament to a good and healthy relationship, um, right? You know, the one, meaning the one that will last forever. Don't uh, stay single until you find that one person, meaning, you know, it's not worth your time to invest in relationships that only last for a year, um, you know? Mm-hmm. So um, a lot of this is based around that idea that's really just outdated and unhelpful. Are you saying that, for example, if you have a relationship that lasts for a year, that the value can just be in learning something and within a relational context or learning more about yourself or a partner or how a relationship should look like for yourself or for them. Totally. And also yeah. relationships short or long can be fun. <laughs> you can, <laughs> yes. It can be fun. It can really, <laughs> you know, call your life with some things that feel wonderful, whether that's just good sex or a companion for dinner or cuddle buddies or travel partners for a year. You know, I'm not saying, you know, look for short-term relationships, but I'm not <laughs> saying look for long-term relationships either. It's just, there's something as you're saying to learn from all the relationships with which we participate. And we don't have to make rules around dating or our current relationships that just create pressure about how to cultivate this kind of iconic, right and healthy relationship. Um, that there's a lot of meaning from all kinds of relationships. Yeah, I think it's also so interesting when you say that, I start thinking about um, the shaming aspect of it, right? If it's over, um, you did something wrong or it wasn't right. worth it's a it. or Yeah, exactly. It's a failure. And I've felt that before, right? After a relationship, I'm like, I failed this relationship. But really, when I really thought about what I felt about it, I was like, oh, I don't really regret a day. I don't regret, or maybe the end, you know, (laughs) because the end was not that fun. But in a world where so little people stay together with the person that, say, they lose their virginity to, right? Then everybody needs to be a failure, really, under that concept. Yeah, I mean, everyone goes through this, I fucked up, I failed, I, you know, I did this bad thing, it should, it should still be going on. And as you're saying, it really erases and overlooks the positive aspects of that person in the relationship that you know we're in relationships because they feel good when they end that doesn't mean they're bad um and we if we think about them as failures then we lose connection to all of the wonderful things that we did have when we were together so um you know really integrating a lot of nuance to the ways we're thinking about the beginnings the ends and the middles and all of the in-between parts of relationships um you know that an ending doesn't have to be a failure um, we can be in relationships with people for one year, three years, 10 years, and it can be great um, and end. Um, mm-hmm. 
and rules about um, what defines right and wrong have to be individually defined. There's no universal truth. So how then should one approach a relationship? If that pressure is taking off, there's still things that we should look out for, right? Yeah. I mean, well, I think the hard part about all of this is that we've all grown up with these ideas and it's still out there on TV in the world. Mm-hmm. About in songs, in books. Songs. Yeah, it's everywhere. So <laughs> yeah. I don't know like, if we can say, okay, forget it. You know, don't think about the longevity of relationships as the test to what means good or bad. Um, and I think we just have to really be aware of how much that can be impacting the way we see closeness and connection, right? Where we might mm-hmm. be evaluating our potential partners so much that we forget what it's like to actually be with them in the present moment. Yes. And that may get in the way of us forming a relationship to see if it could actually work. Um but it also seems like somebody who might be avoidant or very afraid. Yeah, which is everybody, which is what I also think <laughs> is really funny about all this kind of attachment. Okay, I love that, that. Okay. Yeah, is that this intellectualization and overanalysis and predict and anticipation and all this future stuff, future planning stuff, is in one way or another avoidant of the present. Right. So if we're in our heads and we're evaluating our partners, we're not really thinking about what we want at the moment. We're thinking about what we want from five years from now. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and in one way or another, um, it is avoidant. Maybe it's not, you know, classified in avoidant attachment, but it's a disconnect. Yes. Um, but anyways, what you're asking is what can we look for? Um, and that's a good question because I think oftentimes when I'm saying what I'm saying, people are like, so just throw everything out the window, nothing matters. <laughs> I'm like, no, no, um, no, things do matter. I mean, I think we want to look for people who can, one, we want to notice how we feel with somebody in the moment. Um, so this is at the beginning of a relationship. So how we feel with them, if we have fun, if we laugh, if they're curious about us, if we're curious about them, if it feels interesting, if the sex feels fun, um, stuff like that, if they can communicate, um, if they have yes. some kind of way of um, reflecting upon themselves or life in general, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, I think I wonder too, this concept, even what we mentioned earlier, even that it's supposed to be when you meet the one <laughs> or the right person for you, that it's supposed to be easy all the time. Right. And that's clearly... Again, I think such a such a setup for most people because that won't happen. So I think instead of like shaming yourself, you probably should just be like, oh, okay, that's a normal thing. Um, what can people do when it gets difficult? When it gets like conflict, challenge, et cetera? Yeah. Yeah, well, I think what's most interesting is that when it gets diff- difficult, not if it gets difficult, <laughs> Um, when it gets difficult um and by the way i mean when i say these things people are like well what about abuse what if you're miserable i'm not saying abuse i'm not talking about misery um but the just the kind of normal challenges that define relationships in terms of negotiating intimacy time spent together um differing levels of desire like these very normal conflicts that every couple deals with um the challenge the funny thing is that most couples don't deal with them um they don't talk about it they become very mm-hmm. developed fancy ways of avoiding and sweeping things under the rug um which on the one hand isn't terrible right you know you don't need to have conflict about every little challenge that's exhausting 
Um, but on the other hand, if it's persistent and constant, then it's really important to address it. But many couples don't um, because I think so many of us come from a place where addressing our um, internal conflicts or disappointments or asking for more was not something we grew up feeling comfortable, encouraged, or even safe to do. Totally. So yeah. no matter how many of these rules we may learn, many couples really struggle when they encounter challenge because of these histories. Um, so the first thing that's really important is to deal with them, <laughs> which sounds so obvious, but you know, many people just don't. They don't, you know, they wait until yes. it's unbearable, right? Till, you know, I'm crying. I want you to touch me. I, you don't seem like you want to spend time with me. What's going, you know, where it's really unbearable. Um, and that's a challenge. That's a problem. Well, it's a problem, I think, too, because then, I mean, this is also going to be like a very wild statement or something, or maybe it's not Make supposed it. to. Yeah, I'm like, but then it often is also too late already because I think we we stack on so many things that then feel at least so overwhelming that you don't even know where to start with your partner anymore. Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, and then you true. can do therapy. You can do therapy, obviously. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't say too late. It's just, you know, it's kind of like if you, I'm a, I, I almost said I'm a runner. I wish I was a runner. I tried, and it hurts my body. But um, <laughs> maybe like a couple of years ago, I was more of a runner. And like, if my, I had um, this problem with my ankle, and so when I would notice it started hurting, I'd have to stop. Right, stop, not run. Um, as opposed to if I just kept running on it. I might end up having broken it. Um, it's yeah. the same thing with relationships. You know, as soon as we notice some of these challenges, it's important to say, you know, hey, let's check in before, you know, you hate each other or you're disappointed as fuck with one another. And, mm. you know, each partner is on their side of the rink and it's fight time. Um, so it's not that it's too late. It's just that, you know, you want to really try and create a structure for conflict resolution at the very beginning, as opposed to when you're in crisis, because, yes. you know, it's really hard to resolve things and, an escalated state. But the reality is, is that most relationships at some point will get to that conflict escalated state. Um, yeah, I hate, I also, um, I think it's so interesting. I can even see this with my friends, um, this maybe even aversion with therapy, right? Like the, the idea that therapy and seeking help, or maybe even reading some books together, you know, um, is something that happens eight years into the relationship or when you're right. married and have two children, then it's okay to go to therapy or, mm -hmm. you know, whatever, fill in the blank. Um, but in the beginning, you shouldn't go. But I think it's so interesting to me because I would think if you set something up early, you, you can actually avoid a lot of pain later on. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, you make such a great point. And I did this in my past relationship. Um, you know, in terms of, and I'm a therapist, um, there was a little bit of different issues, but, um, yeah, I mean, most people, they want to wait until it's really bad. They say that the beginning is not the right time to go to therapy, blah, blah, blah. Um, but therapy is not for crisis. Therapy is for help and education, information and growing. Mm. And, you know, you can do that at any time. You can do it at the beginning of a relationship in the middle, at the end, you know, it, it doesn't really make a difference. That's the other thing I hear oftentimes. Well, we're going to break up. What's the point? I don't want to be with them. Um, you know, and oftentimes that comes from someone who's been thinking about ending a relationship for a long time. Um, so, yeah, there's never a bad time to go to therapy. Um, but, you know, it's an important point that you make. 
Yeah, um, you also said something that I find really interesting regarding attachment. Mm -hmm. <laughs> because if we talk about dating advice, I think also what is a bit rampant even online when, um, is a lot of ways to define yourself and maybe maybe even use as some kind of a warning for a new partner. Um, I'm anxiously attached. I'm avoidant. I'm these and these things. Uh, and I saw in your writing that you're not a great fan of that. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, it's just not, it's not that I'm not a fan. I'm not a fan of the overuse and over yes. application of attachment. But I do think, I mean, it's crucial in how we think about our lives, but it's so overused. Yeah. And what about the concept of not getting attached? <laughs> uh, well, that's just ridiculous. Um, <laughs> I, I love mean, that. No, I mean, there's this idea about how not to get attached. You know, I just want to yes. have casual sex. I don't want to get attached. Or they don't like me as much as I do. I don't want to get attached. Or, you know, you should only get attached when it's reciprocal and mutual. And the reality is that, you know, sometimes attachment, developing feelings for somebody is not a conscious decision that we make. It's something yeah. that happens over time. Most of control. the time. Yeah, we can't control the way we feel. It's not like I feel sad. It's like saying, don't feel sad. Um, it's the People same do kind say of, that. <laughs> yeah, they do say that, and it's, it's awful. Um, but this idea of don't get attached, it's the same thing. It's just within a relational arena, but it's a feeling, close, connected. Don't connect. Don't develop intimacy. And the reality is that, you know, when we can, when we have the capacity for attachment, that's actually really fucking cool and really fucking important. Um, it may not always happen with somebody that uh, will lead to a relationship. It may not always be pleasurable. It sometimes may result in pain, but that's inherent to dating relationships in our lives. So the idea that we shouldn't get attached is just absolutely outrageous. I think people have to really draw upon their capacities for attachment, closeness and connection as a strength um, and really think about that as an empowering part of their personality and personhood, right? Because then it has trickle over effects into when you want to talk about relationships, it's a good thing. If you want to have, you know, that relationship talking, like, what are we, what are we doing, where are you at? It's a good thing, as opposed to withdrawing from feeling intimate, close, connected, because that's what most people are doing um, in some of the dynamics where they're saying, I shouldn't get attached, etc. Yeah, I, I've had people write in for the podcast before too, and specifically a woman, and I think it's kind of interesting. She was talking about that she was um, trying to live a polyamorous lifestyle. I don't know how she phrased it exactly, but I'm going to paraphrase now. That she was trying to not get attached to a partner who she's only having sex with mm. and that she's feeling... Like in this uh, lifestyle, she's supposed to not, right? And how um, she's kind of fighting it in some kind of a way. And then she was asking me as a woman, right? Like she thinks something hormonal is going on. She doesn't know how to deal with these aspects of it. And I just felt like, and I would love to hear your opinion on that too. I just felt like there was so much pressure put on how you're supposed to feel and what is an okay thing to do within a lifestyle or something like that, that it kind of ruins all the experiences, I feel like. Yeah, I mean, it's tough. And I mean, this is the other thing when gender stuff comes up. Um, that gen sex is not gender specific. Attachment is not gender specific. Feelings are not gender specific. Mm -hmm. You know, there's this thing that happens where it's like, well, women just want to cuddle and don't want to have sex and men don't want to cuddle and just want to fuck and 
don't want to attach. And it's ridiculous. Men want attachment. Um, uh, cis, trans, non-binary, um, all sorts of genders seek attachment, closeness, connection, sex, orgasms. None of this stuff is gender specific. We yes. just grew up learning that it was, um, but it's just completely, completely false. Um, but <laughs> did you know the stuff that you're saying about the casual sex and poly or um, open relationships? Um, again, it's not possible to control how we feel. It's kind of like jealousy. Um, you know, mm. we feel jealousy sometimes for our partners, for our dogs, for our family members. You know, these are <laughs> feelings that come up um, and it's totally normal. The, I think what, what happens here is, that you know we've kind of labeled all negative challenging whatever emotions as bad and we're trying to develop theories around mediating or decreasing the presence of them so jealousy developing feelings for somebody when it's painful no one would ever say i don't want to get attached to this other person who really loves me right <laughs> i don't want to get attached to this person who doesn't feel the same way right i don't want to get attached to this person if the rules of our relationship don't allow for more of an intimate relationship right so the ways in which we want to withdraw from attachment usually happen in these contexts where it's not reciprocated where it may not feel mutual or where we may feel anxiety or pain and so you know i think the re refocus has to be how do i cope with and soothe and understand the anxiety that comes up when my attachment isn't reciprocated or mutual or i experience problems with it right as opposed to how do I become unattached? How do I become cold? How do I become, yeah. you know, not, how do I not care about things? Um, well, that's, I feel like also this is like then disvaluing your needs and emotions because, I mean, there is a way to, to also be acceptant of, oh, I feel like I just got attached. This person doesn't want the same thing. Maybe in order to feel better, right, I have to adjust my strategy and just um, not blame myself for getting attached. Exactly. Yeah, I totally. I mean, shame is another huge component of this. Um, it's a really good point. It's It's strange to me sometimes because I think – Casual sex is such a um, hot topic, I think, <laughs> mm -hmm. um, in a sense that you either you're supposed to have it um, and not feel anything or you're not supposed to have it, like you said earlier about dating advice, you're not supposed to have it because then you'll be labeled something specific or somebody won't take you seriously as a potential partner etc. What are your views on casual sex? Well, I mean, I can have, I mean, I think casual sex is healthy and great. And, um, you know, I think I can have views about myself and how I want to have casual sex or what may come up for me. Um, but everybody has to really define what and if they want to have casual sex. You know, some people are just like, no, I want to feel more comfortable with someone or get to know them for a little mm -hmm. bit. Other people are like, I don't want to get to know them. I just want to have sex. <laughs> you know, everybody <laughs> has a very different experience. And so I think the first thing to say is just that all experiences and thoughts and desires are all valid and important and reasonable and normal and great. Um, you know, have casual sex if you want to have it and really resist trying to put pressure on yourself to enact it um, or enact any sort of feelings that may arise afterwards or during, um, you know, to really remove some pressure and just let yourself be. Um, yeah. 
and and that's really hard for people because it does bring up a lot of emotions for some people um and for some people it doesn't for some people it's the other way around you know where they they can only feel something i mean they can only enjoy casual sex and they don't enjoy sex with a partner um you know there's a whole oh, wow a whole variety of expressions of um what do you pain, do then? pleasure and experiences what do you do um, if you can only enjoy casual sex and you got into a relationship and then you don't enjoy the sex? It's actually a really common issue. I mean, I see <gasps> really? a lot of couples and individuals. Yeah. Um, I mean, one, it's pretty common that long-term relationships, uh, many couples struggle with desire. It's like the most yes. common issue. It's the most common um, question I got for this episode too. So <laughs> it's a thing, you know, it, yeah. and it's again, another one of those toxic dating um, myths that, you know, we should always have desire for our partner and when we don't, or if we stop having sex with a partner, that it means something really bad. Yeah. Um, and it's just not true. It's just, it's a struggle to sustain just kind of like, I don't know if you're in a good mood, a good mood may be hard to sustain if you have a shitty day, you know? So um, things come up, but um, when I'm seeing an individual or a couple and they're really struggling to enjoy um, sex with someone they have an intimate connection with, um, you know, there's just, there's a variety of things to do. I mean, one common thing that often comes up is that if someone wants kinky sex, they have a hard time sexualizing and objectifying a partner. Um, and they can only really express their kinky self with someone that they don't know. Um, and so, you know, then mm. the question is, you know, do you want to try and do that with a partner or is your relationship structured in a way where that's okay? Um, you know, and again, it's not for me to say, well, you should be doing this with a partner. You shouldn't, you know, um, it's really up to the couple and the individuals in that couple. So, um, you know, the the most important point here is normal is there's no normal here and it's not the goal the goal is yeah. individual satisfaction and that's that can only be subjectively defined and experienced absolutely i agree i asked the listeners to send in some questions for today's show and like i just mentioned a lot of people wrote in my partner and i have been together for a few years we love each other we don't really have much desire for each other anymore what should we do or um, another one was like, how could I have more sex with my long-term partner? It's only once a month. Another one is like, I want more sex than my other, than my partner does. How do we deal with that? Like, what, um, are some general things that you think people could look at in a situation um, like that? Yeah. Like I said, this is like the most common thing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Which is interesting, you know, I think we would all be better equipped if we entered relationships from day one, talking about, you know, what do we do when this happens? Um, yeah. But so what, like I said, at the beginning of today, that most couples, when they encounter challenge, they don't talk about it. And I do mm. this Q&A on Instagram every week, and I get the same questions. And most <laughs> of the times people are talking about these issues with everybody but their partner. Or when they talk about it with yes. their partner, it's a fight, or it's passive aggressively addressed, or it's a criticism. Um, but it, you know, if you were going to, I don't know, purchase or move, purchase something or move or make Thanksgiving and you needed to pick out, um, a menu and ingredients, you'd probably sit down with your partner and really talk about, okay, what do we want to do? How do we want to do it? How many people are we having? What neighborhood do we want to look in? You know, we, you, we would really go into it. And yeah. that's the same thing you want to do when it comes to a lack of desire or differing, kinks or a discrepancy between um, any kind of uh, preference or difference 
is you want to talk about it. Um, you really want to address it. Um, and so would you say something like actually s- scheduling, you know, like an evening where you sit down together and like maybe even make a list or um, of things yeah. that, yeah? Yeah. I mean, there are so many different reasons why couples don't have sex. Um, it's usually not one thing or another, but at times it really can just be one thing, like we're too busy. Mm. Um, so again, it really depends on the person, but I mean, a couple of basic things is, you know, putting in an intentional effort to stimulate desire when there isn't desire is a really big issue for couples, meaning they're usually too busy dealing with kids or dogs or working 10 hour days, or, um, you know, they work and then they go to the gym and then they have to eat dinner. And by the time they're done, they're exhausted. It's nine o'clock. You know, there's not enough time. Um, so you really want to put in intentional effort to say, okay, I want to have sex with you. We have to have sex. You know, let's plan on doing this uh, no matter what, if we're tired, whatever, we can just get naked and just kind of lay next to each other, you know, um, where you really, um, remove the pressure for a specific type of sex, but to really just be with each other and have pleasurable experiences, um, and be intentional about that. Um, and, um, it's effort. So much what I was saying about cooking, you know, if you were going to make food, you'd probably plan it. You'd say, what do we need to buy? You put effort into it. And the same thing goes for sex and trying to create desire is you want to put effort into it. Um, uh, so that's one thing. Oftentimes it can be space. Um, but by that, I mean, emotional, physical space that a couple may, especially with COVID spend every single waking moment together. Yeah. Um, and they end up, in a place where they're not really leaving the house much, they don't have separate friends, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it can be really helpful to um, to take space from one another. And I don't mean like move out, maybe move out, but you know, really going out, being independent, seeing friends um, without your partner, having a thing without your partner, um, that can really be helpful to get some separateness. Um, you know, this is when dependence gets too, um, when there is too much of an imbalance um, and independence inserting some independence can really stimulate some desire um but so there's a there's a variety of different things mm. that couples can do and other times it's just really dependent on conflict you know there's a lot of conflict and it turns both or one partner off um, because they're so disgusted disappointed annoyed and frustrated or whatever so i mean there's a lot of different things that can be worked yeah. on but it can't be worked on unless it's not discussed so the challenge is really being brave, open, honest, direct, and then really trying to do some problem solving and trial and error. Um, and that's when it can be really helpful to enlist a therapist, to read a book, to take an online course, um, because most people don't have the tools, language, and communication skills to really address this. Yeah, for sure. And I feel like um, since sex is something that most people don't talk about in general, it gets even more difficult because then if you don't have a language um, or have not even addressed it with yourself, maybe you are in a pretty lost space. I can imagine Um, on a personal level, sex hasn't been a big problem in a sense that I work in an, you know, I have a sex podcast, Mm -hmm. um, I write erotica. So when I meet, um, a new partner, sex is something that is quickly talked about because of what I do, right? Mm-hmm. So therefore, it's a bit easier for me personally to to kind of gauge where we at or to um, engage in conversation like that. But most people don't have that at all, as I can 
see obviously by listeners and by friends and like just culture around us. I wonder if a lot of things could be a bit easier if sex is a conversation that can be had, like you said, like planning dinner or the same thing as we maybe talk about our parents or our families or our friends. If it's just if that pressure is taking off um, of that being such a taboo subject. Yeah, I mean, it's same with me. Like I... Um, because this is what I do, I have language yeah. and skills to bring it up right from the beginning. Um, and most people just don't. Um, but yeah, I mean, if they did, it would be totally different. But it's because of sexual shame and sexual fear and yeah. sex, unlike food, or maybe food actually for some people, but is really charged with a lot of shame. Um, yeah. and, a, and people mostly develop this reflexive muscle of withholding and staying quiet when it comes to sex. So being... Um, direct and open and powerful and loud um, not just during but just to talk about it um, is something <laughs> yeah. completely foreign for most people so it, it really requires a lot of learning and really recognizing shame and fear um, it's so funny because we have such double standards right on, on the one hand and I understand this because of our conditioning but you wouldn't be scared to tell a partner about a hobby you know right. <laughs> but right. you're scared to tell a partner that you like to be i don't know flogged you know <laughs> right yeah where we where we have such a double standard but obviously clearly i mean you know going roller skating is a little bit more um okay at the dinner table with your parents as well <sighs> than and then bdsm <laughs> to be fair to everybody um so actually, I mean, I wanted to ask you this in the beginning, but then we just like kind of dove in. What made you want to work in this field? Um, I started therapy with a sex therapist when I was um, 14 and um, I didn't go oh, wow. to a sex therapist. He just happened to be one. So sex had always just been part of. Oh, wait, he was he was a therapist and also a sex therapist. His specialty was sex therapy. Okay. Um, but I, I didn't go to him because I was having sexual issues. I just went to him because he was recommended. Um, it was a referral. And so because of that, sex was just fundamentally part of my therapy. Um, mm, and then when I got to school for to grad school and it wasn't talked about, I was like, well, why is, is that we just don't we just ask? Isn't this just part of it? Um, <laughs> and um, it was not. And so as when I started practicing, I knew very early on that this was something that I wanted to talk about. I myself, you know, had really worked through a lot of my own sexual issues and have had a bunch of sexual challenges. Um, and, it, you know, it's a big part of relationships because if, if you're in a sexual relationship, you know, oftentimes it's what brings people to stay together is sex um, or some kind of commitment to that. So anyway, um, <clears throat> I so when I started working, I just knew that this was something that I wanted to centralize in the work that I did because, you know, 10 years ago, people were not talking about sex like they are now. You know, yes. means weren't a thing. Um, sexual empowerment really wasn't a thing either. So um, I knew that it was something really important to talk about. Um, and yeah, that's how I got started. And that's why. For you personally, and let me obviously always know if something is a little too personal, but what were big, big revelations for you learning more about sexuality or even like in your personal life? Yeah, well, something that I think has been really helpful for me is, you know, no, I have anxiety issues and whatever. Me so, too. <laughs> um, um, and so 
uh, oftentimes it would show up during sex. Um, mm. And at first, when I was much younger, I would just feel ashamed. I would be like, why isn't my body working? This is bad. Everyone's going to reject me, blah, blah, blah. Um, and my therapist really helped me understand and, and, and shift my focus away from evaluating my body as functioning or non-functioning to really recognizing that what my body is doing is speaking something, is saying something to me, is picking up on something, um, which was, you know, this person's not safe. I don't feel comfortable yet. I'm not ready. I want to go slower. I don't want to do this. I'm not aroused by that. This turns me off. This turns me off, right? So I've been able to really re, uh, reframe some of the messages that I get from my body as messages as opposed to malfunctions or dysfunctions, right? So we yes. think about our body and whether it's aroused or um, hard or wet or how fast or quick it takes to reach orgasm or how we actually can um, get to the place where we're as in our partner's touch or our touch. Um, we think about these things as the way our body should operate, but oftentimes it's so emotional, psychological and relational. So it's really helped me reframe that in terms of paying attention to the language my body is speaking um, and trying to get information about who I am and what I want based on that information that my mind not might not be necessarily thinking consciously. Um, so that, that really helped me. And I learned that a long time ago. So if I, you know, if I'm having sex and I can't get hard or if I can't get off or something, um, I really just don't feel shame. I'm just like, well, you know, my dick knows something that I don't and um, <laughs> I'm not into this apparently. And, um, you know, I'll either try again or recognize that this isn't working. Um, so it's less of a shame-based experience whenever I have any kind of issues, which actually decreases the issues, right? Because then there's less emphasis on performing. Um, yes. So it's just, it's been helpful. And so I'd encourage everyone to really think about their bodies as communicating to them as opposed to dysfunctioning. Dysfunctioning? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I wonder actually what you just said about performance. I actually, I mean, I also get a lot of questions about that. I'm sure you do too. Yeah. <laughs> because it's a pretty hot topic. If you're in a relationship, for example, or even if you're a casual counter, maybe, how do you communicate that then to your partner um, without the fear of making them feel insufficient? Or um, I mean, you just say, I, I, sometimes I have a problem getting hard, getting wet. I need to go slower. Um, you know, and this is when, you know, if we withdraw, as opposed to communicating what we need. There's a lot of information there. Um, you know, it's usually about shame and fear, um, but you really want to be direct. Um, and it can be hard to do during sex, especially with a new partner. I'm not saying don't like do, of course, communicate <laughs> during sex, but this is why communicating and talking about sex from the beginning is really important um, because it's less pressure when you're naked or, you know, you're trying to um, give someone oral sex or penetrate or be penetrated. And you're like, wait a minute, can we actually talk? Not saying you shouldn't again, but it can be easier before you have sex to say, just so you know, you know, I'm into these things, um, but I do need to go slow. So you can't just stick your dick inside of me. You know, I need you to um, <laughs> give me oral sex, rim me. I need to use toys first, or I actually don't want to have penetration for a while. I'll let you know when I'm ready. Um, you know, because there's a lot of performance anxiety is about um, anxiety about a specific sexual act um or a specific specific sexual function like arousal uh etc so you want to try and give your partner all the tools and information you need to decrease your anxiety whether that's about um a certain type of touch or a certain type of speed or some whatever it is um you just want to communicate about it is that also part of creating um sexual compatibility 
Yeah, um, this is something that I, I write about, and it's important and complicated as everything. <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, a lot of times we can, sure, we can meet somebody without ever talking about sex, have sex with them, and there can be chemistry. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people hit it out off like a house on fire. I don't know. You know, <laughs> sometimes it happens. But most of the times, um, I think especially depending on age, too, um, people come into relationships or even casual sex, the whole variety of issues we all do. And so we may not show up as our full sexual selves. We may not verbalize and communicate as much as we need. So over time, we really have to try and do that in order to build compatibility. Um, And I I like to think about compatibility as just more of a willingness um, Mm. and um, a consistency to pursue and please and receive and give pleasure. Um, Because if that's the case, I think it can, you can really build compatibility unless there's just a scrap, um, really huge differing kinks and um, one person's just totally not into it, you know. Um, But talking about sex can be really helpful when trying to build compatibility. I love that you just said compatibility is willingness because, or can be to a certain degree, right? Because I think that also goes into romantic relationships or emotional relational (laughs) issues, I guess, (laughs) where I think often it goes back to what we said right in the beginning, I think, where we often think we should get together and everything should be perfect and we should just be compatible on all, all fronts. And if that's not the case, this is clearly not the right thing. Um, which at that point you just have to date yourself probably. Uh, (laughs) Right. I mean, then, I mean, which is also fine. I mean, if this is what you want to do, but that we have this illusion that these things should all just work out with, um, without saying anything, without learning from each other and without adjusting, I mean, to a point of, you know, you feeling safe and comfortable, obviously. Yeah. I mean, it's really important point um that you know we have if we're not dating ourselves we have to expect differences and we have to really give ourselves um feel empowered enough to negotiate and work through those differences um and i think that's when things go awry is that people don't feel entitled to be different or ask for something specific or special caretaking or for their partner to try a kink that they didn't themselves volunteer uh etc because they really have to push for more and that's really hard for people I got quite a lot of questions for the show. So if you're into it, let's um, look at a few of them. Sure. I mean, we already started kind of because I think, like you said, questions often revolve around the same thing because I think this is also a very freeing concept that most people have similar um, issues. (laughs) Yeah. So I think people feel often so alone with the things that they're going through where that's actually not the case at all. Mm -hmm. Um, Totally. One question that we haven't really um, addressed yet. Somebody wrote, how do you disconnect from a past lover? I want to let go, but I don't know how. Um, well, I mean, it depends on how they're connected to them. Um, yes. you know, is this a literal connection? Is this just something they have internally that they can't stop thinking about them, et cetera. Um, but I mean, there are a variety of different things. Um, one patients, 
Um, I think people greatly underestimate how long it actually takes to get over somebody. Um, mm -hmm. And to the, the reality is we may think about past partners for a very long time, um, depending on context and life circumstances and um, family and access to support. You know, if our partner was once our supporter, companion and family, it might take a long time. Um, yeah. So patience is really important. Um, part of the grieving process is, you know, allowing it to take as long as it takes. Um, but then not just sitting still and doing nothing, you know, you really do want to put yourself out there, date, have sex with other people, develop new friendships, um, really reconnect with who you are as an independent person. Um, yeah. And um, then over time, it, it will decrease, but it, it can be hard. I don't know. This is a very personal view on it. <laughs> but sometimes I feel like it's it's difficult, more difficult for people to get over things if there's a lot of fantasy involved. Mm. Um, yeah. Right. Or for me, it has been in the past where there was a lot of room in a relationship, maybe somebody emotionally unavailable or maybe it wasn't even a full relationship. Right. Where there's so much room for fantasy that we would have wished could have been, but wasn't actually reality. True. It's a really good point. <laughs> Something yeah. that I often struggle with myself. Of course. Um, you know, yeah. that when we get space from the person that we were in a relationship with that ended, we often forget the reasons why it ended. And we may romanticize. Yeah. We also fantasize about, you know, um, uh, or over-idealize um, having been disconnected from all the negative aspects. So, Yeah, it can be really important to remember that, you know, the way we remember or remain connected to somebody is often uh, skewed and inaccurate. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's definitely difficult. <laughs> it's no... stuff, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, he wants kids. I don't. We've been together for two years. Is it worth staying together? Uh, well, for everybody, it's different. Um, you know, it really depends how much you want to be with this person <laughs> yeah. um, and how much he wants kids and how much you don't want kids. Um, that This is something that just really needs to be negotiated. I get a lot of questions like, should we stay together? I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't you? know you. <laughs> yeah, I don't know you. I don't know your partner. These things are complex. Yeah. Um, but there are certain issues like kids or certain um, major differing values um, that can be really problematic. And so, yeah, if someone wants kids and the other person doesn't, that can be an issue. I do think it depends a bit on your age, too. Mm. <laughs> I mean, especially if you, oh, I don't know if you can even say uterus owner. <laughs> but <laughs> but age-wise, right, we have like some realities um, of the likelihood of being able to, be get, pre uh, to get pregnant if you want a child by yourself, right? If you give, we want to give birth. Um, so I think a question in a relationship, definitely that the immediacy of that increases the older you get, I guess. Totally. Yeah. I mean, but these are things that you really want to negotiate openly, honestly, bravely, et cetera, because it can be really difficult, um, yeah. especially if you love the person. Yeah. You know, I was also wondering, and I think this is always the difficulty between the balance of asking um, for help outside of your relationship or what should be discussed within your relationship, where it's very difficult for somebody else to give you advice uh, on complexities of your relationship. Mm -hmm. Yeah, everybody does it. Everyone talks about it. whether it's 
friend or partner or family member, we all talk about the challenges we have with them with other people more than we do with the person that we're directly having challenges with. There's nothing wrong yeah. with it. But it's just to say that you might increase the volume on addressing those challenges if you want to resolve them. Yes. Yeah. But it's hard. It's hard. <laughs> it definitely is hard. Um, all right. One more here. How can I tell a partner that I have HPV? You tell them you have HPV. <laughs> um, I get a lot of questions like this too. How do I tell a partner of HPV? How do I get a, tell a partner I'm into being spanked? How do I tell a partner I, you know, I mm. uh, don't like uh, our house, you know, whatever. And <laughs> it, 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 what we're talking about is relational anxiety, sexual fear, specifically with the HPV or kink stuff and shame. Um, mm -hmm. But when it comes to how do I tell my partner X, Y, Z, you know, we really have to think about the relational anxiety that's implied to that question, right? That's the real kind of thing we want to focus on because we all know how to tell somebody something. We go to, to order coffee. We say, I want a large iced coffee. We go to a restaurant. We say, I'd like this thing. We are walking in the street. Someone's in our way. We say, excuse me, hopefully politely, et cetera. We know how to tell people things. It's a matter of when things become challenging or if they trigger us or if we feel ashamed of them or if we feel scared to of the repercussions that we all of a sudden lose capacity to think about how to interact relationally or prompt or ask or share, right? So what we're talking about is a question of how do I share something with a partner? And the mm. answer is pretty basic. You just have to share it with them. But the, what's, what the person is really asking is how do I overcome my shame and fear of being rejected by sharing this information? How do I overcome that anxiety? And so that's something mm. that's cultural, relational, historical, psychological, blah, 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 blah. So we would be better suited to think about that as opposed to, well, how do you know, because most people say, well, how do I share this? How do I ask for it? We know how to ask for these things. Um, it's not a matter of logistics and how to ask. It's a matter of emotion and how to work through that shame and fear of the repercussions and fears, anticipatorily fears um, of sharing something, asking for something, et cetera. How, what would be like something to focus on um, in order to make it easier to overcome that anxiety of rejection? Um, well, I mean, we all have a very specific story, um, uh, with rejection, yes. right? I think all of us have experienced rejection. Some of us within our family home, some of us in elementary school, high school, um, but in some of us with our general culture. Um, so rejection is a really scary thing. Um, and so it's going to bring up different responses for everybody. So the best thing we can do is really learn about our story, the origin stories of our rejection, connect the past to the present, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. I also do get um, quite a lot of questions about coming out for lack of a better, mm -hmm. for lack of a better term. And how do you identify you're queer? Is that correct? Mm -hmm. Or am I? Yes. Yeah, I say gay, queer, whatever. Gay. Okay. Um, so I think a lot of people with challenges to be like, how do I, I have never, actually a lot of people saying I have never had um, a same sex relationship or even relation, you know, in that sense, like sexually speaking. Um, but I have this feeling inside of me or a specific question I got the other day was I, um, I really am attracted to my same-sex friend, and I don't know how to approach this. Um, do you have any 
recommendations or tips on like getting support or help or how to approach that with yourself? In terms of recognizing, you know, sexual attraction for specific genders? Yeah, or how to, I guess, come out to yourself first and then maybe to others. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it's really hard. Um, there's so much information now that may conflict with information that many of us internalized, you know, years ago. Um, you know, I think sometimes we have a clear idea of who we are and what we want, um, but most of the times we don't, especially at the beginning of a journey. And so um, this is a journey, even though that word is still overused. <laughs> um, but it is, you know, it's a story. And, you know, if you're just recognizing some of these sexual or emotional feelings, this is the beginning. And at the beginning is really a time of uncertainty for many people. For many people, it's not. Um, but for many people, it is. Um, so I, you know, I, when I'm seeing clients who are experiencing some of this, I usually try to just remove as much pressure as possible to identify as one specific entity, um, because there's so much pressure now to, um, well, not as much now, but it's, I mean, it's still there, whatever. Um, there's so much pressure to really identify and to declare oneself as this one thing or another. Um, and I think it's just important that, you know, if you don't feel like you can connect with one specific word or box or category, that's totally fine. I would focus less on the categorical placement and more mm -hmm. so on experimentation and experience. Um, and then just thinking about that experience um, and really just taking it a step at a time. Um, but then also working through the internalized homophobia, queerphobia, transphobia, whatever that, that comes up throughout that experimentation, et cetera. Yes. Yeah. It's probably also so dependent on where you are and what you, um, where you live i mean where you live so true <laughs> what your surrounding is like right um yeah. how much support there is how much access there is maybe even to a community um 100 yeah your geography really will define how much sexual shame you feel um for whatever specific sexual experience you're having yes yeah exactly because it does this applies probably for a lot of other things too <laughs> Mm -hmm. When you think about it, even kink, you know, where yeah. if you live in a city where there's more people, the likelihood of finding somebody who is similar totally. <laughs> is higher. Um, um, okay, cool. What um, what are some resources that you'd recommend for people who seek help? Also, what do you offer, you know, like your coaching and everything? Sure. Um, well, I mean, there's therapy. There's I mean, there's so much information these days everywhere um so which is also you know, a little disorienting sometimes i feel like it is like when we talk about dating so advice choice. you know yeah um you know there your your question was what resources can people use yeah Sorry. yeah um yeah so i mean there is therapy for one um which can be really hard to find access to because there are one so many therapists it's expensive etc but still i think a good thing to explore and a good challenge to push through um but so there's therapy most therapists now have some kind of are not most, many therapists, uh, including myself, have online programs. It's cheaper, it's self-directed. Um, you can do it whenever, wherever you want. Um, so there are online programs for sex relationships, love, et cetera. Um, there are so many great books out right now. I have a highlight on my Instagram page where I, there are just tons of great books on love and sex and relationships. Mm -hmm. um, there are coaches, life coaches, intimacy coaches, sex coaches um there's group therapy that's cheaper um that can be really helpful and impactful um there are apps um 
that have just tons of information, courses and lectures and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, there are videos on YouTube that you can watch TED Talks by people who specialize in relationships, therapists. Um, you know, there's there's so many different resources and I think they're all good. Um, and so I know it can be really overwhelming if you don't exist in that space. So the best thing to do yeah. um, is to just try one, just try one, pick anyone, pick a video, pick a like Google online sex therapy courses, pick, pick one or a book or pick two, you know, read a book and take an online course. Um, and just see what that's like, you know, really just take it yes. a step at a time. I know we all get overwhelmed and say, how, what's going to fix my problem? Oh, <laughs> here are these 30 different options you have. And you're like, oh my God, what the fuck? I don't know. Um, <laughs> just pick one. Anyone will do any kind of movement or a step in the direction is a step in a direction. And if you pick up the book and it's an awful book, put the book away, take a course. If you take the course and you're like, fuck this, this is terrible. Uh, seek <laughs> a therapist or look on YouTube for a lecture on relationships, you yeah. know, try everything you possibly can. Yeah, for sure. That's a great, great tip. Um, what What is your online class like? I have two. Uh, one is on love and one is on sex. One, it's called Love Lessons is one and the other one is Sex Sessions. Um, they're both kind of a relational sexual education, um, but it's much more than like genitals or things like that or conflict resolution. It's really, you know, a real in-depth program. Um, and there is an online course where it's just like a lot of information. Um, and there's a workbook that comes with the course. Um, part of the workbook is a long questionnaire to help people reflect and journal. Um, and then another one is, um, to help if you're in a relationship or not in a relationship, work through conflicts or understand conflicts, um, stuff like that. Um, the sex one can help you explore kink and, um, work through shame and deal with sexual challenges. Um, and then both courses have monthly sessions with me. Um, so there's a couple of different hmm. components. I think it's, they're really great programs and they're only $40 a month. So it's pretty cheap. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I have a lot of colleagues that have similar courses that seem just as great. Um, do you, so there, there are, there's a lot of good stuff out there. Do you also do, um, well, in-person therapy, of course, but also online? Yeah, I actually don't do in-person anymore. I had an office in New York, um, which I gave up uh, after the first year of COVID. I can't believe we're in year three. Oh, my fucking God. Um, (laughs) But uh, I do all my sessions online virtually. Um, Mm -hmm. So, yeah, but I'm not not necessarily taking on any new virtual clients. Well, don't Um, do that then, people. (laughs) Yeah, but you can take my course and we can talk that way. That's true. That's true. Um, okay, last question. How can people find your work? The best way to find me is on Instagram. I'm at your diagnonsense. Um, or you can go to my website, which is my full name, which I should have picked like a much simpler option, like blue.com <laughs> or something. Um, but it's Todd S. Barrett's dot uh, com. But find me on Instagram at your diagnonsense or on TikTok, which I'm trying to start, which I fucking hate, but I'm there too. I hear you. <laughs> um, well, thank you so much for this conversation. Yeah, thanks for having me. This was fun. Amen. Thank you guys so much for listening to the Pussy Church Podcast. And please check out our amazing guest, Todd Barrett's, in the show notes. If you like today's show, please head over to iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. It helps us keep the show going. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would be amazing too. See you next Sunday. <laughs>